Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to this Tuesday edition of Political Rewind. I'm Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, filling in for Bill Nygut. Today, we're doing a deep dive into education politics here in Georgia. What was once considered a niche issue under the Gold Dome has emerged at the front lines of the culture wars. A raft of bills have advanced through the state legislature, including measures that would take the teeth out of mask mandates, limit the participation of trans children in sports, and lay out how issues like race and LGBTQ rights can be discussed in classrooms. We have a lot to talk about today, and I have a great panel with me here to break it all down. Joining with me is my colleague, Tai Tagami, a state education reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And Tai, I don't think I've seen you in person in about two years, but it's great to see you now. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Tamara. It's great to see you. Next, we have a longtime friend of the show. Brian Robinson is a Republican strategist, a former communications director for Governor Deal, and president of the consulting firm Robinson Republic. Did I get all of that? That's great. That's all you need to know. And I understand. Hey, Brian. And I understand you've worked on some education issues lately. Well, I have. And over the years, I've, and as time knows, because I touch base with him every, every couple of months on a school choice issue, uh, it's something that I work on, but also something that I just personally believe in. And so it's been, it's been rewarding work. I just wish we could move the ball a little further down the, down the field. Sure. And last but not least, we have Lisa Morgan, who's the president of the Georgia Association of Educators, which is the state affiliate of the National Education Association. Welcome, Lisa. Good morning. Thank you for having me this morning. And Lisa, I understand that before you stepped into leadership, you taught pre-K, kindergarten, and first grade in DeKalb County, right? Yes, I did. Um, 21 years and 17 of those in kindergarten, which is my love of grade level. Absolutely. Well, Ty, I'd like to kick off our discussion today with you. Uh, You've covered education for the AJC for many years. And Every year, there are plenty of education issues that come up in the Georgia legislature, often involving funding, teacher pay, that sort of thing. But this year, things are kind of different, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I've never covered a session quite like this one. They're usually quite busy, um, but usually the most controversial and attention-grabbing legislation involves school funding, like, you know, voucher bills are often a big deal. Um, but this year, those are almost taking a back seat to all the other issues that um, have arisen after the, uh, pan- well, the, in the, amidst the pandemic and a lot of um, parent frustration with it. Yeah, of course. I mean, we have flush coffers in the state thanks to some of these COVID relief packages that have come through Congress. We have a stronger than expected economy. Uh, but Brian, we had a major turning point last fall in Virginia um, when Republican Glenn Youngkin uh, had a really come from behind victory where he upset the Democratic former governor, Terry McAuliffe, and education was a giant part of his platform. Nothing is mobilizing parents right now more than these issues, not, not, not even the economy, not, not even inflation. 
these are things that are so close to the heart. And the pandemic, I think, brought out some issues that we had just not thought about in a broad societal sense before. Parents felt voiceless. They felt like they were being shut down. There was a huge divide in the country, of course, over issues like masks and school closings and vaccine mandates, all these things. And the people who were on the other side of the local school boards, on the other side of the state governments, they just felt trampled upon. And they saw their children falling behind, and they saw a tremendous strain on their family. I was lucky. My daughter was largely in school throughout the pandemic, wearing a mask for nine hours a day. But I always had to live with this fear of them, uh, school's going to be closed Monday, and we don't know when we're coming back. How do you have two parents with jobs when you have so much uncertainty? You know, what happens is that stress level begins to really build. And when your stress levels are really, really high and you're scared, you better believe that's going to be a motivating issue when you go vote. So, yes, this is something that's highly important to parents. Now, I'll be interested politically tomorrow to see now that kids, for the most part, aren't wearing masks at school. We don't live in fear of school closings. Does this issue lose its potency? It was still super hot when, when Yunkin won in Virginia. You know, it was super hot into this calendar year. Will it change now? I think that's something that we will see in the, in the primary as far as like what Republican candidates are talking about. And, you know, there's a chance that by, no, by November, this is distant history, but maybe some of the lingering impacts of these issues will carry on. Lisa, I'd like to bring you into the conversation, too. I mean, tension between schools and parents is nothing new, of course. But talk to me a little bit about how the pandemic impacted teachers. And I mean, I'm sure teaching, talking to all my teacher friends, teaching remotely certainly wasn't easy. And many of these teachers have kids of their own they have to worry about. So talk to me how the last two years has impacted teachers and how this this discussion um, over politics has kind of seeped into to the schools. The last two years of the pandemic have been very trying for educators. Um, in a recent poll, over 55% of educators said that they were considering leaving the profession earlier than they had attended. And part of it is due to um, all these issues that should not be political, have been made political, wearing masks to protect our students, our families, our students' families, which is what the CDC says we should be doing, um, should not be political. That should be simple, basic. I'm going to go back to my kindergarten um, students. We care about each other, and we take care of each other. And if wearing a mask helps us do that, that's what we should be doing. And I think for our students and educators, um, what's really being overlooked in the pandemic is the impact of the trauma upon all of us. Um, Many of our students have experienced the loss of a loved one or a serious illness in a loved one, and we're just acting like that never happened. And we know that trauma impacts our students, not only socially and emotionally, but also their ability to do their academic work. And we seem to be overlooking that as we come, begin to hopefully come toward the end of the pandemic. We're acting as if the last two years and that trauma did not happen and we can just flip the switch and move on like the pandemic never was. And that's simply not true. 
So we have to pay attention to the social and emotional well-being of our students and educators. The number one word I've heard from educators is exhausted. And um, it is truly a time where adding more trauma and discourse and division is not what we need to be doing. Parents and educators need to be coming together in the partnership we've always had because we are all focused on one thing, and that is our student success. Ty, um, Lisa just used the term exhausted to talk about kind of what teachers are experiencing. And as Brian alluded to, so many parents are kind of exhausted based on on where they were. And in Virginia last year, you really saw Republican Glenn Youngkin kind of position the Republican Party as the the party of parental rights. Um, Talk to me about that. Is that something we saw from the Republican Party in the past? And how is that playing out in a state like Georgia this this election year? Yeah, parental rights. There are so many bills that I would sort of broadly categorize under rights, um, and which I, you know, I haven't seen before. Um, and arguably, some of the bills don't they they don't necessarily do lots of new things. For instance, um, there is a bill um, requiring school board meetings to be open, and you know, we they've been open as long as I've been. A reporter. Um, there's some nuance there. Uh, the legislation requires posting um, uh, rules of behavior in a prominent place online, so people know how they're supposed to behave. So I guess we're anticipating more, more participation by parents publicly. They're more engaged in education. We'll see how long that lasts. That hasn't always been the case. People are busy. Um, but yeah, there, we've got uh, um, so the open meetings bills. We've got even parent bill of rights bills, which are basically allowing parents access to curriculum, which they can see already. Um, uh, that's in the state uh, law, um, and uh, of course the the divisive concepts bills. Those are we've never seen those before. They were generate they're a response to critical race theory controversy over the past year that everybody's heard about. And, and that is all new. What's, what's interesting to me, um, uh, like Brian said, is are, are we going to still be energized by these issues in a few months? And I wonder, I just wonder how, how much different Georgia is from a place like Virginia. We don't have uh, teachers unions per se, Lisa can speak to this. It's in Georgia, it's, we have advocacy groups, they're not unions. I don't think they have the same clout as say the you know, Chicago teachers unions. They can't, they didn't shut down the schools here. Matter of fact, Georgia's schools were mostly open through much of the pandemic. And that I think maybe took the lid off some of the pressure that you're seeing and the frustration that you're seeing elsewhere. Not that it wasn't, as you said, exhausting. That is the word of the year uh, over the last two years, for sure. Um, but but Georgia is a very different place and politics is very local. So it's going to be interesting to see how all of that plays out. Brian, let's talk about how this issue might be helpful for Republicans. Certainly, it's kind of sexier than education funding. And I guess, you know, this can help, you know, the, give the base some red meat, especially folks who are feeling anxiety about the changing culture, white people feeling well left behind, of course, people angry about mask and vaccine mandates. But maybe, what, especially when we're talking about exhausted parents, maybe this is a way to bring back some of those suburban women into the Republican Party uh, who Trump kind of pushed away. Yeah, well, I, I, they absolutely do. And it's, it's not just one, it's numerous 
ones. The, the CRT issue is something that greatly mobilizes a lot of those Biden voters who had voted Republican in the past. They are wildly offended by the idea of it. And what do Democrats say about it? They say, well, this isn't being taught anywhere in Georgia schools. They're not saying it should be. They're not even arguing the point. They're saying it's nice. They're saying, they're saying it's a made-up issue. Well, it's not because the left controls curricula, uh, development in this state and in every other state. And we all know that to be true. We know what academia is. I'm not casting aspersions, but we know what it is. And, and so it's believable that, this is, that if, if left unchecked, unguarded, this is the, the direction that we're going to go because this is the march of curriculum over time. We've seen it happen. And this transgender uh, sports issue is one that I am hearing from one Republican candidate after another who is polling amongst primary voters, wildly motivating. And this is one that's a super dangerous issue for Democrats because it's an issue that unites Republicans and appeals to independents. And many black and brown voters don't want transgender uh, sports uh, to, to, be, to change, to have you know, biological males competing in women's sports. So it's a, it's a place that it's an issue that fractures the Democratic coalition and brings traditional Democrat groups in alignment with Republicans on some of these issues. And we get to school choice, that too uh, cuts across those lines because in states that have implemented school choice, you have seen a gravitation of black and brown voters to Republicans because their kids are getting vouchers or kids are getting great charter schools, and those parents don't want to lose those options, and they see Democrats as a threat to them. So across the board, these are hot and motivating issues for Republicans and independents and for a part of the Democratic coalition. Lisa, critical race theory, you know, we, we've talked about it in shorthand, CRT, but it's not something taught in K through 12. It's a graduate school framework to look at how racism impacts society, laws, that sort of thing. But of course, it's become shorthand for what people see as an overemphasis of race and racism in schools. Um, talk to me about how your organization is is talking about some of these issues. And um, uh, yeah, go into that. <laughs> okay. So I, I think the important thing that we understand is that um, 84% of Georgia's, Georgia voters agree that high school students in Georgia should be taught an accurate history of our nation, including the good and the bad. And 84% of Georgia voters agree teachers in Georgia classrooms should not be forced by politicians to teach outdated and inaccurate lessons. We are not in the 1950s. We are in 2022. And it is very important that our curriculum and that our Georgia standards reflect the reality of our history as a state and a nation. And that includes topics of race and racism. Our Georgia educators are professionals. We have professional integrity. And we teach the Georgia standards of excellence with ethics and with professionalism. That means developmentally appropriate conversations about these hard topics. There are difficult conversations that need to be had with our students, but our students are able to have those difficult conversations. I think one of the things that highlights that is the fact that there was a group of students who traveled from Savannah yesterday to attend the Senate education hearing to discuss these concepts. Unfortunately, the students were not able to be heard from during that hearing, but they are 
speaking out again today. Our parents and our students want our education and our curriculum to be honest, to focus on our students developing into honest, ethical, and courageous citizens. In fact, yesterday, the word courage was added to the pledge to the Georgia flag. So if we want our students to be courageous, then we have to allow them to have these difficult conversations. Ty, weigh in here. Um, yeah, the, you know, one of the, the, the bills that I forgot to mention as part of these bills of rights is uh, um, one about quote-unquote obscene materials in schools. Um, and, and like a lot of these bills, we, we don't, there's, there hasn't been clear evidence about um, a, a massive problem that our current systems can't handle. And uh, it's been interesting to watch the process. It, there were um, a bunch of students who showed up. They drove from Savannah yesterday to testify at the, uh, at the hearing yesterday that Lisa mentioned, and they weren't allowed to speak. But that's happened throughout the legislative process, There's just, uh, which is kind of ironic given that some of these um, legislative bills deal with open school board meetings and um, giving the public time to comment. There just hasn't been time in many cases. There have been parents on both sides have been denied an opportunity to speak at some of these hearings, and there have been multiple hearings on some of these bills. Um, but, the, uh, I've, yeah, I've not seen the sort of um, uh, frustration at the Capitol uh, we're seeing this year among parents. And what was interesting to me, I think, is among all these bills, the, the the one where the, the most parents showed up was uh, involving the mask legislation that Kim's going to be signing today. That seemed to you know generate the most enthusiasm. Yeah, that that bill signing ceremony is is going to be at um, at two thirty today, and that bill and and Ty, make sure that I'm um, describing this correctly. But it, it basically will prevent schools from enforcing mask mandates if if a parent doesn't want their child to be wearing one at school. That's right. It'll be in effect for five years, and um, Kemp would be, uh, well, any governor would be able to uh, lift that prohibition uh, under a state of emergency. Yeah, gotcha. And, and Brian, let's talk about the, the calculus for Democrats here. Um, you know, they've been criticized for not taking some of these school issues as seriously as they should have in, in places like Virginia. Um, and obviously, they don't want to alienate parents exhausted by COVID and, and remote learning. Uh, but also, you know, as we've said, teachers unions, we don't really have that here in Georgia. But still, that's been a group that's that's long been aligned with Democrats. So talk to me about um Kind of the the positioning for Democrats. Um, I know they're certainly hoping that hoping that it'll backfire for Republicans. Yeah. Well, let me draw an analogy to begin with here, Tamar. The Democrats are in a, are in a vice. They they have nowhere to turn because there's a downside, a major political downside, no matter which way they go. Do they appeal to their base who believe that people should wear masks basically into infinity because it's a sign of virtue, or? Should they appeal to, to those who, who want to see some change? And, and do they appease parents who want to keep schools open and don't want mask mandates? And, or do they appeal to the Chicago Teachers Union, which I think took stands that offended people throughout the entire country as just extreme and counterproductive and harmful to children? I mean, even the Democratic mayor of Chicago, who's you know no moderate, had to come out and Take them on because it was so extreme. 
you know, Republicans face a similar dynamic during the Senate runoffs here in uh, 2020, 2021, when they had to choose between getting the independent voters that I thought them were not were targeting or keeping their base motivated by saying the same things about the election that Donald Trump was saying. And at the end of the day, they very clearly went with the base mobilization strategy. And what happened? We had a wild swing of independence to us off and Warnock, which is why those two guys are in the U.S. Senate today. And this year, Democrats are facing very similar dynamics. You know, they, they, have, to, they have bad choices. Do we go with our base or do we go with the middle and uh, these so many people who are mobilized on these issues? I don't envy them. And they're having to face that at a time when Biden's approval rating is around 40 percent, which is where Trump's were in 2018 when, uh, when Democrats had a, a great year throughout the entire country. The generic ballot for Democrats is the worst it's ever been in the history of polling. Uh, even Democrats give Biden a 45% approval rating on, on economic issues. He's underwater with his own party. This is a toxic, catastrophic atmosphere for Democrats, and these issues will put gas on that fire. Lisa, I wanted to ask you about one of the bills being considered in the state house. Um, uh, this book, or sorry, this bill, SB 226, would require principals and not librarians to decide which books should be banned from schools. Um, supporters say it will streamline the process for uh, removing books. Um, you know, some people worry that it could lead to, to censorship. And I think there's fear that especially books from authors of color or LGBTQ authors are, are more likely to be banned. Talk to me about kind of the current process for how um, dealing with controversial topics, how how school boards and, and teachers and librarians deal with that now. And what is your group's position on legislation like that dealing with obscenity? OK, so currently, a uh, state board rule requires each school and each district to have a library media committee. And I have actually served on that committee in my school for many years. And if a parent wants to challenge a book, the library media committee meets and makes a recommendation whether this book is appropriate for the library, this book is appropriate for the age level of our students. Um, the bill simply expands that and makes the decision of the principal. One of the major issues that will happen with this bill is that it requires then that the um, material, if it is allowed to return to the library, to be po it must be posted on the school district's website. So basically it is saying that one parent can try to shame the school board and the rest of the district into removing material that they find inappropriate, whether it is truly inappropriate or not. Um, the example I will use, I know many of you saw uh, McMinn County in Tennessee removed a prize-winning graphic novel, Mouse, about the Holocaust because they said it was objectionable because there was nudity in the graphic novel. And a book about the Holocaust is going to show nudity because that's the reality of what happened to the Jewish people when they were taken to the concentration camps. And in fact, the nudity in this book shows naked mice. The mice are the Jewish people in the book. Um, we fear that these processes will be used to remove books that should be in our libraries, books by um, 
authors of color books that deal with issues that our students, particularly in middle school and high school as they enter puberty, are going through the questioning that happens in students, all children as they go through puberty, go through that time of change. And when they question the world around them, they question things about themselves. And they need materials in their libraries that speak to that through other characters. And they need actual nonfiction books that give them the information that they need. And the concern is that these books will be removed. And we are already seeing that happen in various places. We are seeing that happen in some of our schools here in Georgia, that books that are prize-winning books that have been used for years with our students are being challenged. In fact, I spoke with a teacher a couple of weeks ago that a parent challenged her use of the book, American Born Chinese, and told her that, no, in world literature, she should be teaching Beowulf and Shakespeare, because when he was in high school, that's what he read in world literature. Um, in many cases, I feel like these issues are coming about through not misinformation, but disinformation where we have community members who are believing what they are reading and they are getting this information from less than reliable sources. All right. We need to hit our first break here, but stay with us. We'll be right back with more Political Rewind. We're back with more Political Rewind. I'm Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter at the AJC, filling in for Bill Nygut. Our panel today for this education discussion is Republican strategist Brian Robinson, Georgia Association of Educators President Lisa Morgan, and AJC education reporter Ty Tagami. Let's dive back into the discussion. Um, Ty, we've talked about several of these bills pending before the state legislature. Um, Some would do more than others. Certainly some are are kind of meant to emphasize what's already on the books. Um, But talk to me about some of the ones that you think could have a bigger impact in schools and kind of changing the way that we do things now. Um, That is a really good question. A lot of it is going to I'm just. really looking forward to seeing how some of these play out, the divisive concepts bills. For instance, if you read the, uh, those are the, the, the bills that were generated in reaction to critical race theory um, and, uh, and its tenets supposedly being taught in the schools. And if you read the actual language of bills and what would be prohibited, it's, it's really difficult to imagine any teacher actually specifically teaching those things for, you know, among the prohibitions that um, you, you shouldn't be teaching that a child should feel um, guilty or bad uh, uh, based on the color of his or her skin. Uh, it's just, it, it, it stretches credulity to think that teachers are actually um, teaching these things. But um, the, the legislation was also about um, just the sort of the tenets of these, uh, these concepts seeping into education. So I, it's going to be interesting to see how many challenges we hear about from parents and how far they go, whether they re- result in sanctions for teachers. Um, 
among the bills, I mean, that, that one, the, the, the uh, obscenity book that we just, or bill that we just talked about um, for books, that I could see that having an impact as uh, principals instead of um, committees take on the task of determining which books um, are prohibited. The, the legislation imposes some pretty tight deadlines, so principals won't have tons of time to read through the material and make a decision, so they may feel um, pressured to um, uh, make a decision. Um, and uh, some of the other bills that would have an impact if they pass, but so far they haven't, um, are the, uh, there's a couple of voucher or voucher-like uh, bills that have been stopped, which is, which I find fascinating in a year when so many of these bills are passing, uh, Republicans have actually lined up against one of the biggest voucher bills, um, and they, in a, in a larger margin than a couple of years ago or a few years ago when the uh, bill failed. So unlike other states like Arizona or Florida that have embraced vouchers, so far Georgia is, is proving reluctant. Brian, weigh in on that. I know that you've been, uh, some of your clients uh, have been uh, proponents of this voucher legislation. Talk to me about some of that. I know there was controversy uh, over some folks hitting Republican incumbents too hard in some of these mailers. Um, What's the dynamics around that at the moment? And is this something that you think could be revived in the future in Georgia? I think that you're going to continue to see slow and steady progress on this. Now, this year, with those bills that you're mentioning that have been stopped for now or paused for now, I think those are some that would be big steps forward for school choice. And let's tell people what they do. They would give families like $6,000 that, you know, each kid in Georgia, between local and state dollars, it's about ten, eleven thousand dollars $11,000. I'm sure that my fellow panelists know the number better than I do. And uh, what this would allow to do uh, is like the, the state portion of that money would follow the child. So the $6,000 is the state portion. And if you want your kid to go to a local private school, a Christian school, uh, if you want them to be homeschooled, and there are all these different costs that are, that are associated with that, homeschool is not free either, then the money follows the child. Now, all these are taxpayers. They're local property taxpayers or state income taxpayers. And this allows them to keep the money that they're paying in taxes for their children and make the best decision for them. I really thought that the pandemic would put fire under this issue and make parents seek options more. I think part of what you're seeing as far as the way this cuts across Republicans is, you know, there are parts of the state, particularly in some rural parts of the state where there aren't many private options and where the local school district is one of the highest payers uh, of salaries in, in the county. And that creates a scenario where you have a lot of support for the status quo. And you, they don't want to see change. And so those, some of those are Republican areas. So, you know, where you're really seeing the, the, the fight for it is in, in your more exurban, suburban, and urban areas. And what I think is going to happen eventually and you've seen some courageous black legislators through the years, particularly Democrats, stand up you know, on behalf of school choice issues. I think over time, you'll see more and more of those as black families demand more options if they're unhappy with their local school boards and their local school districts. And, you know, in Florida, when DeSantis won that governorship at the same time that, that Kemp did, he got over 100,000 African-American votes. I don't know about the Latino numbers, but it's even higher. And people say that a lot of those families are families that got school choice and were afraid of losing it. 
So I think for Republicans, it's not only good policy, it's good politics. Lisa, I know your organization has fought against uh, some of this voucher legislation. Um, Why don't you like it? We fight against voucher legislation because we believe in public education. And public education exists for our communities as a common good. Certainly, if parents want to choose to enroll their children in private school, that is their right. But it is not their right to take the public funds to the private school. Public funds should be for our public schools. And as we have seen, legislators agree with that because they know that public education is the great equalizer and is a cornerstone, actually, of our democracy. Um, Our students deserve the best education. The Georgia Constitution says that we must provide our students an adequate education. We believe that that should be changed. We should be providing all of our students in our public schools a quality education. And the reality is that all of the voucher programs that have been proposed, the maximum that they would give a family is $6,000. And I hear particularly often that this is going to allow students to escape a struggling public school. My school was one of those that was originally on the list. It's no longer on that list. But the parents in my school with a $6,000 voucher could not afford even the cheapest private school. The average private school that participates in the current special needs voucher program, the tuition is over $14,000. The parents in the majority of public schools do not have an additional $8,000 each year. The reality is in most of these programs, they are used as a coupon for those who already have their students in private school to get a discount on their private school tuition. We believe public funds should be for public schools for all our students. The analogy I like to use is um, many families hire private security to protect their home. And that is their choice. And if they make that choice, they are not then allowed to come back and request the tax dollars be taken away from our fire department and our police department because they are no longer using the services of the public good. Ty, uh, I understand, obviously, while this larger private school voucher legislation uh, has been stalled, at least for now, there is a separate piece of legislation, um, kind of a a scholarship program that would touch a lot of these same issues. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, that's the student, it's an unwieldy name, the Student Scholarship Organization Program. Um, And basically what it involves is uh, tax Credits like so, you or I could um, steer, say, five thousand dollars. I'm not sure what the cap is these days. Of our um, taxes owed to a scholarship organization, which in turn would then um, help pay for the tuition of a private school tuition of a particular student. Um, so you're not supposed to be able to steer that money to a particular school. It goes through these pass-through organizations, and um, uh, at People like Lisa will call that a voucher. Um, It's not, strictly speaking, a voucher. The state Supreme Court actually said it's not a voucher because it's uh, not public funds. The state hasn't collected the money yet. It kind of just goes around the state. Um, And so that program, it's been around for numerous years. It started out with a fairly low um, maximum per year cap. 
that started to grow. It hit a hundred million dollars before the pandemic. Um, and, uh, then so, and then there, there was a bill with just the past last or, um, yeah, past the Senate last year, um, that would have, it's just a mop up. It was fixing a few, um, technical things in the program. But then this year, the, uh, since it's a two year session, so the bill was still live. We hadn't really heard anything about it. Um, and then uh, out of the blue, um, it uh, came through the uh, House, and the House doubled the cap just to, without going through the – didn't have to go through the hearing process. So it caught a lot of people by surprise. It just showed up on the House floor. Um, so the cap was um, lifted from $100 million to $200 million by the House. So that's we're getting into serious money there. Um, but what was interesting is that the Senate, which would have had to get technical here, they would have had to agreed to that change. The Senate, um, in a quick, uh, um, it wasn't even a vote. Uh, it was just a move to, um, uh, uh, to, to disagree. And so the Senate disagreed. So that bill is in limbo right now. I don't know what's going to happen with it. I guess it would go to a conference committee. I haven't heard anything about that yet. Um, but uh, that that one's a wild card. And uh, as we go into the waning days of the session, that's the kind of legislation that can uh, pop out and, um, and uh, pass. Brian, we've talked about how education issues uh, could be a big boon to Republicans. Uh, there's appeal to independent suburban women, even some Biden voters who are just exhausted and tired of everything. But there are also some people who've wor- warned that this could have a, a chilling effect on teachers being able to teach. It could harm teacher recruitment, which has been an issue here for many years. And some people worry are worried that all these bills could kind of cast teachers as adversaries for, for parents. Um, what do you make of that argument and how how do you make sure in all that legislating that that you don't shy away? You know, you don't scare away young people who are thinking about joining this profession. <laughs> well, I, I find it funny because the teachers are not a monolith. I mean, teacher unions are a monolith as far as being Democrats. But the teachers themselves, I mean, many Georgia teachers vote Republican in this state. So. You know, they have a diverse views, just like every other group of Georgians do. And the debate over curriculum isn't something that's just popped up. I mean, we've had debates over curriculum throughout history. And, I mean, going back to whether or not we teach evolution in the schools in the the 1920s, right? So this is an ongoing conversation, and society is changing, and the issues that we talk about are changing. And sometimes the the change is abrupt. Of course we're going to have a conversation about it. And of course, people who disagree with the, uh, the the establishment viewpoint on some issues are going to speak out. And this is all being overlayered at a time that conservatives feel canceled, that they feel like if they speak their views, they are going to be uh, fired from their jobs, they're going to be socially sanctioned, uh, they're going to get beat up by Twitter trolls. So there is, there is a sensitivity that we've got to take a stand and, and tell people we're, uh, what we believe, and we're not going to be shamed. And so, of course, you see conservatives stepping up on some of these controversial issues. It's, it's their right. And 
uh, and they're adding to the public conversation. And it's, it's being inflamed even more by reports that the, the Biden administration has surveilled parents that disagreed with local school boards. You know, these things are highly motivating for, for voters. Lisa, what's, what's the impact of, on teachers? I think the impact on teachers is um, a continued deprofessionalization of the profession. And it's also, um, it is divisive, and it is driving a wedge between what should be the partnership between parents and educators. Parents and educators have one goal, and it is a common goal, and that is the success of our students. And allowing this to all become political is harming our students, it's harming education, and it is harming our profession. We have more... We already know that over half of our educators leave the field in the first five years, and that trend is increasing. We have a teacher shortage, and this is just exacerbating that problem. All right. We're going to take – oh, go ahead, Brian. I I agree on on the teacher shortage issue, and it's something that we need to work on as far as showing respect uh, to teachers, making them feel safe and and appreciated, making sure they're, they're fairly compensated, particularly in your more expensive areas of the state. That's something that I'm, I'm, I'm all for. Uh, my problem is saying that uh, having a discussion of a curriculum is political because what I hear as a conservative is, you guys shut up. That's what I hear, and I think that's what a lot of conservatives hear. All right, we're going to get to our final break of the show, and we'll dive right in in a couple minutes. Stick around. We'll be right back with more Political Rewind. We're back with more Political Rewind. I'm Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter at the AJC, filling in for Bill Nygut. Let's jump right back into our discussion on education policy with the AJC's Ty Tagami, the Georgia Association of Educators, Lisa Morgan, and Republican strategist Brian Robinson. Um, Ty, the jury's still out on how many of these bills are going to get done uh, before signee die next week. Uh, But I'm wondering if you've seen any evidence of many of these issues beginning to play out in school boards and in classrooms across Georgia. I know that you've been to some pretty wild meetings in the last couple uh, weeks and months. And talk to me about how these issues are playing out at the hyper-local level. Um, Well, during the legislative session, I haven't had time to visit school board meetings. It's it's, uh, kind of a full-time job being over there. But um, this has been going on for a year. I, I attended a school board meeting in Cherokee County that was unlike any I've ever seen before, and that was uh, last May, a year ago. And that's when critical race theory sort of just first appeared um, on my radar. And uh, that was there were uh, it was a packed um, packed um, room. It was a large room, and there was nowhere near enough space to accommodate all the people. There were lots of people locked outside, you know, pounding on the windows, frustrated that they couldn't get in. And there was just general um, anger and yelling and screaming. And uh, that was my introduction to critical race theory. Um, A lot of those, uh, there was a mix of parents. A lot of parents were homeschool parents. So um, they were just there as members of the community, I guess, concerned about um, uh, the, the, the general education and, and uh, the kids of their friends. But there were also uh, parents uh, from the local schools, and they were, um, some of them were 
particularly interested in book issues, um, obscenity. Um, so already then we were seeing this issue sort of, it, it was multifaceted at the time. And since then, it's the critical race theory seems to have been um, overtaken by the obscenity issue. And Forsyth County has been in Metro Atlanta, maybe ground zero for that. Um, there've been lots of uh, <clears throat> students I've talked to who've gone to, it's like a job for them, I guess, going to the school board meetings at this point to um, protest against the protesters, parents who want to um, uh, eliminate obscenity from the school libraries. Um, you've got students um, noting that a lot of the books that are targeted are um, by authors of color or um, that touch on gender identity issues or race. <clears throat> so um, that has been, um, I've not seen anything like that in my years of covering education. It's really, uh, these, this, these times have really energized um, parents and students um, on, on political issues. Lisa, what have you seen and heard from folks? I'm also wondering if you've heard anecdotally about teachers who might have been disciplined for things they might have said in the classrooms or administrators who've tried to change the curriculum in order to insulate themselves from um, any criticism at meetings. Yes. One of the things that I would really like to point out is we have had these conversations for years. But in the past, these conversations have been happening in a civil manner. And they've been conversations rather than, in many cases, what we're seeing now, um, lots of anger, lots of threats. And so it's taken on a different tone, and it is not a tone of collaboration. Um, in some cases, it is literally a tone of my opinion or my view um, trumps the view of everyone else. My values get to be used as the values for everyone rather than um, a conversation and a discussion about why something is appropriate or inappropriate. And the concern with many of these bills is that there will be that chilling effect, that we do have administrators who are very risk-averse, and I have heard more than one administrator throughout my career say, we do not want to be on the TV on the 6 o'clock news. So we do believe that administrators, they do not have the power to change the curriculum, but they can direct educators to change their lesson plans to perhaps most carefully, we believe it will happen in literature that principals will tell educators to choose a different text to use to teach a particular lesson because they fear there will be a complaint about that text or that book. Brian, in Virginia, we saw Glenn Youngkin uh, run an ad with a, a mother who discussed her high school son reading Beloved uh, by the Nobel laureate Toni Morrison, a classic about slavery in American literature. Um, that obviously uh, went, you know, he used that to great effect in Virginia. Um, how is that being discussed uh, now among primary candidates uh, here leading up to the Republican primary in May? Well, you know, Ty has mentioned a few times today talking about some of the reviews of what books are, are being used in school. And I think that that's where it is. I don't think that that is the most pressing, hot-burning issue uh, that, that there is. But when it comes to silencing teachers or making teachers feel uh, scared to, to talk about tough issues, 
let me tell you again. I keep coming back to this because I think this viewpoint needs to be needs to be told. That's exactly how conservatives feel that we're not allowed to say in that public sphere, in a public school, on a university campus, what we think for fear of being canceled and sanctioned. You mentioned Virginia, Tamar. Well, you know, at least in conservative media, I know mainstream media probably didn't cover this. But there was a very high-profile case of a high school male teacher who got fired for saying that there were two genders. And so are we worried about his rights? Are we worried that he was silenced, that p- teachers in Virginia now have to worry about saying what, what they think uh, on, on that issue? I, 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 if I'm a liberal teacher, I feel very confident to go in there and say what I want to say. If I'm a conservative teacher, I feel much more nervous about expressing my viewpoints. And do you think that, uh, Brian, on the right, that this activism can kind of be sustained? We've seen the rise of groups like Truth in Education, obviously people packing these school board meetings. Is this something you fear could go away after this election year? Well, you know, activism at this level can't be sustained over time. It's just not. You know, eventually you get to uh, some some conclusion to it. And Those who are most upset do change the political um, trajectory uh, on issues. They do see policies uh, implemented to address their concerns, and situations change. I think moving out of the pandemic has lessened the intensity on some of these issues as well, because that's the stuff that impacted people's lives the most. I mean, (laughs) if you, you... have to keep telling your employer you don't know when you can come to work because you don't know what the school schedule is going to be and all of a sudden that's no longer the case a major burden has been lifted off of you and your ability and desire to go show up at a school board meeting on a wednesday night at seven goes down tremendously yeah for sure well, Brian, I believe you're going to get the last word in today's show. Um, that's, all, that's all the time we have today. <laughs> I'd like to thank our guests, Brian Robinson, the AJC's Tai Tagami, and Lisa Morgan from the Georgia Association of Editors. Uh, or sorry, of educators, I'm sorry. Uh, I'd also like to thank our producers, Natalie Mendenhall, Sam Burmis-Dawes, and Jesse Nyswanger. Uh, Please subscribe to our Political Rewind rewind newsletter, which you can find at gpb.org slash newsletter. It comes out on Wednesday afternoon. Uh, You can always listen to the show on our GPB webpage or watch it on our Facebook page. If you missed any part of today's Political Rewind or you want to listen to our past shows, download the Political Rewind wherever you get your podcasts and get in touch with us on our Twitter page. We're at Georgia Politics GPB. Bill Nygut will be back tomorrow. I'm Tamar Hallerman. Thanks for joining us today and have a great rest of your day.